Welcome to House Calls, where we talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, the division of Key Bank Capital Markets Incorporated. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, Delivering Kinder, Smarter, Affordable Care for All. I also co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of this dynamic healthcare industry. This month, we continue our discussion of the future of hospitals in post-COVID America. In our first article, we talked about the market response to COVID-accelerated disruption. In this follow-up article, we discussed the policy responses needed to support hospitals in low-income communities, particularly rural and inner-city communities. This month, we continue our two-part series, The Future of Hospitals in Post-COVID America. In our first article, we talked about the market response to COVID-accelerated disruption. In this follow-up article, we discussed the policy responses needed to support hospitals in low-income communities already under great fiscal and operational pressure. COVID has only made that worse. To dig into this meaty subject, I'll be talking with my two co-authors on the article, Dave Morlock and Bart Plank. Dave Morlock is a senior banker in the firm's health systems and M&A group. In a past life, he was also CFO for the University of Michigan Health Systems and CEO of the University of Toledo Medical Center. So when it comes to hospitals, Dave certainly brings a knowledgeable and notable perspective. Just as knowledgeable is Bart Plank, the firm's co-director of healthcare public finance. Welcome to House Calls, gentlemen, where the bankers are always in. Thanks, Dave. Uh, appreciate you having us on. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here, Dave. Great. Well, let's dig into it. Setting the stage, it's September 2020. The COVID pandemic has been with us for about six months. I remember early on, March, April, hearing that Kane Brothers bankers were getting a high volume of inbound calls from clients looking for answers and advice in your conversations with hospital executives, what's the level of uncertainty, pessimism, or optimism that you're, you're hearing right now? Most of my hospital executives, I would say at this point, are, are cautiously optimistic. When you think about where they started, uh, you know, really it was almost like getting prepared for, for war and not really knowing what you were exactly going to be fighting. So, you know, first operationally, uh, getting as much PPE as, as you could starting to figure out how you were going to admit patients. All the things that hospitals were trying to do in the immediacy operationally was also being run in parallel with, with what I would call balance sheet protection. So we saw a real rush uh, for people to increase or get new lines of credit. Most of the losses that were incurred while elective surgeries couldn't take place were really overcome uh, by the significant amount of, of capital injected by the government in the, in the various programs. And I think what we're seeing now is that uh, elective surgeries in, in a lot of facilities are returning to their, their prior run rate levels. The biggest challenge operationally that hospitals are seeing now uh, from that perspective is just um, how many procedures you can do uh, in a COVID environment in a given day. You know, looking forward, I think there's a, a healthy uh, fear of, of what will happen in the fall, but I think hospitals are feeling much more ready and knowing what they will be facing. That's encouraging to hear, Bart. Dave, what's your take? So I spend my time talking with health system CEOs primarily and then CEOs of big 
physician groups, and also CEOs of health plans that are connected to or owned by health systems. Generally, what I'm hearing at this stage, folks are, uh, to echo what Bart said, cautiously optimistic uh, about things going forward. Many of the forward-looking CEOs are are actually pretty happy about the drive towards some of the consumer and digital platforms uh, like telehealth and those types of things. What I find interesting is the CEOs that, that generally look at this situation and say, you know, all of the fundamentals that existed before the pandemic are still here. And they're going to exist after the pandemic. We've also seen some organizations, and these generally are smaller hospitals and smaller health systems, you know, say under a billion five or so in revenue, who oftentimes have historically said, you know, come hell or high water, we're going to stay independent. And now they've actually seen what high water looks like, hell and high water, (laughs) and they don't like it. So we're starting to see a lot more conversation around consolidation from folks who previously had thought, you know, that's way out into the future if that ever happens. And we're also seeing some big health systems who are actually using the pandemic as a catalyst for being aggressive and trying to grow and saying, look, we've got the combination of enough balance sheet strength or enough access to capital that this is an opportunity for us to go out and sort of seize the day and and try to grow through acquisition. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty dynamic time. And that gets really to the heart of this discussion about what is the future of hospitals. And we've been putting our heads together to discuss both how COVID has affected healthcare in general and then hospitals specifically. And when we examined the landscape broadly, we saw that circumstances and the outlook for specific hospitals were very different depending on the marketplace. So in the first articles, we focused primarily on the M&A market, which is largely bigger systems looking to get bigger and and gain market share. And they're tending to focus on dynamic markets that generally have healthier populations, favorable payer mixes, strong balance sheets. And we're not too worried about that group. They have the opportunity and the resources to position themselves by adopting digital technology, enhancing service lines, consolidating, transitioning over time to value-based care. And if they can't do it, shame on them. On the other hand, when you look at low-income markets, and those tend to predominate in inner city and rural communities, it's much tougher. Dave, why don't you just talk to us about what the reality is like for hospitals in rural and inner city markets that are under much more pressure? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the use of market forces to drive positive change. However, requires that you've got a functioning market. So in some of these unfavorable market areas, another way of saying that is places where the social determinants of health are not in the best of circumstances. And many of those hospitals and hospital leaders and boards are in a catch-22. They see the drive to reduce the cost of care. They see the downward pressure on revenues. At the same time, they've got patient populations that they're taking care of with difficult circumstance and their their social determinants of health, 
which runs counter to driving down utilization, reducing cost, and pushing care into the lower cost settings. So at the same time they're getting the revenue pressure, they don't have the resources or the market forces to create the impetus to make the changes necessary. So you get caught in this downward cycle. And it worries me that it is a potential public health crisis in the making, frankly. Yeah, Bart, what would you add to Dave's comments uh, in terms of the challenges confronting hospitals in lower income communities? You know, to come at it from a little bit different perspective, um, you know, my area of focus in investment banking is is tax exempt financing for hospitals. And, um, you know, what we've seen uh, since the pandemic, if you look at the rating agencies that evaluate a hospital's ability to pay back debt, you know, it's the hospitals with the weaker balance sheets that were in the tougher markets that were the, the ones that were going to get downgraded. And so you think about COVID as really exacerbating uh, a precarious financial position for these facilities. Yeah, let's dig into social determinants of health a bit. Um, as we've seen, COVID has hit people with with chronic conditions disproportionately, and it's kind of ripped through the very types of communities that we're talking about, uh, inner city, rural, older people, people with, with comorbidities, and so on. And these are the very places um, that have the most challenged hospital facilities. So what's the right way to think about investing in social determinants of health while we're trying to right-size the acute care and, and hospital footprint? You know, it's it's going to be a really heavy lift, and I think it's going to take a significant amount of investment, entrepreneurialism, and really some visionary programs to try and figure out how you can sort of break this curve where we have large areas of the population that don't have access to the appropriate nutrition, don't have access to the appropriate education, exercise, you know, a population where the children are not in school. So the parents are probably having difficulties uh, with their own occupation where, you know, diet and nutrition may be a little bit of an afterthought in terms of what, what can be afforded that will be a challenge because they do require hard work to remedy. It's going to be far, far more difficult, I think, to see it happen uh, than for us to, to talk about it and just say people need to eat better and exercise and, and be happy. How about that? A system where people pursue uh, wellness and try and stay out of the hospital, that, that that's our goal. Well, Dave, you've lived this on the other side. And one of the you know, distinguishing characteristics of American healthcare is that providers get paid different amounts of money for doing the same thing uh, based on the type of facility they are and who's making the payment, um, whether it's a government payer or a commercial payer and so on. So talk to us about payer mix and how it in some ways obstructs the ability of the system overall to achieve the very kinds of objectives that Bart was laying out for us. Well, as we used to say, God bless payer mix, right? I've worked in a couple of different uh, big health systems in my career, and I've been on each side of the payer mix spectrum. And it makes a world of difference in your financial situation, in your resources to invest, in your mindset. I've seen analyses done where solid financially performing organizations, if you take 
their payer mix and simply replace it with, you know, a payer mix of a struggling hospital 50 miles down the road with a different payer mix profile, even if you use the, the original hospital's payment contracts, they shift from, you know, a money-making enterprise to a money-losing enterprise. And then you're right in that, that strained environment that we, that we talked about a few minutes ago in that downward spiral. What's interesting from the investment perspective, ultimately to see the investment in improved social determinants of health uh, in the value-based care, you've got to have a situation where the providers are tied into the insurance premium, to the top line uh, of, of the revenue, rather than being paid on a, on a piece-by-piece piece basis or a widget basis, which is another word for fee-for-service medicine. Uh, not being paid to do stuff to people, but rather being paid to keep people healthy, right? It's health care as opposed to sick care. And in order to get the investments in social determinants and in value-based care, uh, you've got to have skin in the game in the top line, insurance premium dollar. Yeah. So are you seeing evidence that's happening? We are seeing, we're seeing evidence that it's happening. Um, the problem is it's a slow moving uh, transformation. But look, the reality is American healthcare is highly regulated and it's extremely political. The vast majority of congressional districts around the country, you'll find that the hospital or the health system is the largest or one of the largest employers. So if you start making policy changes that, that may, over the long run, make a lot of sense, but may create initial pain for many of those hospitals and health systems, people come out of the woodwork uh, to lobby against that change. You know, you're a jobs killer. Um, you're not supportive of the elderly or the poor or other vulnerable populations. And there are many po politicians that sign up uh, to be known as a jobs killer or uh, anti-vulnerable. Dave, thanks for that. When I look at, at healthcare right now, uh, I think most of the services uh, that people go to providers for are, are relatively routine. We, we know what to do probably 80% of the time. Um, and in, so from a services perspective, healthcare is relatively mature. Uh, when other industries mature, they tend to decentralize the lower costs, become more convenient, and improve the customer experience. And we're certainly seeing some of that in healthcare. Um, you see the rise of urgent care centers and home care and, uh, apps and so on. Uh, but we're we're also seeing a number of places continuing to double down on the centralized high cost method for delivering care, uh, you know, primarily through hospitals. Um, so in some respects, healthcare is immature from an organizational perspective that it really should be more decentralized than it is. Um, and then it's exacerbated by uh, some of the places most in need of change are the ones with the weakest balance sheets and least ability to transform. Yeah, I, I think we've uh, danced around this a little bit in some of the prior uh, comments, Dave, but, you know, when you think about it, we should have a completely different model than we had 50 or 60 years ago. 
you know, you think about these facilities designed to basically take care of every problem you could imagine, right? From uh, open heart surgery, um, neonatal ICUs to a stub toe coming into the emergency room. And, you know, as, as our payer mix has changed and reimbursement has changed, healthcare has become more expensive. How do we make those big brick buildings uh, less needed or repurpose them? If you take heart disease, for example, uh, we know so much more today uh, how to prevent heart disease than we did 50 years ago. So the need for heart surgery should go down if you can advance that you know, with your population. It's kind of like the hamster on the wheel. You're, you're spinning around because you're just yeah. getting more and more procedures. It's terrific that we can do more for more people, but obviously that requires more cost in the system. And if we can redeploy some of those resources to prevention, uh, that's where we can really make a difference. You're right, Bart. We're, we're getting much better as an industry at keeping sick people alive longer. Wouldn't it be great if we could uh, sort of flip that around and prevent people from getting sick in the first place or discovering it early? Yeah. Dave, how do you think about this paradox? Yeah, there are a lot of things that line up to keep the status quo in place, whether it's politics and it's lobbying, it's concern about, uh, well, what do you do when you've got that, you know, 50-year-old uh, brick-and-mortar uh, behemoth in town? You, you don't want that thing shuttered up and, and closed. It's sort of hard to pivot or turn that battleship when you're, when you're in that spot. I also think that in the healthcare industry, healthcare people love to talk to other healthcare people. And there's maybe less cross-industry pollination that impacts care delivery models and, and drives change. Um, I literally saw the other day an ad for a virtual conference around innovation in care delivery models, and it was six major health system CEOs and one lobbyist who is a former major health system CEO. And I thought to myself, I don't think those seven people are going to drive the innovation in American healthcare. Let's pivot from the bad news, or at least the old news, and start talking about some of the promising solutions we've seen, because we, we made some effort in the article to look at some of these medically underserved markets um, and find places that are, are thinking different about the problem. Um, and I think all of us believe that, uh, you know, top-down, one-size-fits-all solutions aren't going to work. Um, the right solutions need to be put in place for the communities that work for the, the people in those communities. Um, so let's, let's start by discussing what we termed regional transformation plans. Uh, we see them in both urban and rural markets. Uh, a dramatic example uh, we all encountered a couple of years ago was when Mission Health, a very strong regional health system in uh, North Carolina, chose to sell itself to for-profit HCA, uh, which took a lot of people in the marketplace by surprise. And I can think of any number of strong nonprofit systems that would have wanted to add Mission to its uh, port to their portfolios. Uh, but one of the things that came out of that was the creation of a 
$2 billion uh, foundation, the largest per capita foundation in the country. Uh, and it's going to focus almost entirely on social determinants of health for people in Western North Carolina, uh, truly potentially transformative. Um, former CEO of, of Mission, Ron Paulus, uh, gave a talk on that, uh, on that sale and its implications at the Kane Brothers Conference a couple of years ago. Um, more recently, four hospitals in Chicago's South Side, all safety net hospitals, all struggling, all with lousy uh, quality ratings, uh, announced that they wanted to merge and form an, uh, an altogether new health system where they would take their four hospitals, repurpose them um, to some other use, end up with, with one or perhaps two modern hospitals, uh, but then a whole network of ambulatory and uh, clinical care uh, outlets, uh, a unified electronic medical record, more emphasis on prevention and so on. And so instead of the state of Illinois funding uh, for declining hospitals, it would be investing in a community health network that uh, would actually serve the needs of the people on the south side much more effectively than, than what they're receiving today. Um, Dave, what do you think of these types of, of transformational efforts? Look, I, I love to see that kind of stuff. The story in Asheville is, you know, remains to be seen how it plays out over time, whether it, it creates the transformation that we all hope that it's going to create. But the idea of taking huge cash balances off of the not-for-profit not balance sheet and putting them into a foundation uh, that spins off spendable dollars every year to impact the social determinants while the hospital still exists, right? So all of those nurses are still working there. The doctors are still there in town, just happens to be owned by a for-profit HCA. Um, so the care is being delivered and they were able to unlock that cash sitting on the balance sheet. Uh, I, so I think it's a fantastic idea. It, it does call into question, you know, places that have 10 and 12 percent uh, EBITDA margins and 350 to 400 days of cash on hand, who then sort of sit there and say, well, it's a mission driven organization. And you think to yourself, is it really? <laughs> and, and how does that play out given those, given those numbers? Because it feels like perhaps the citizens in your community are paying too much for health care. Well, Bart, let's uh, let's shift our focus a little bit and talk about what's what's going on in the, the market. In the last couple of months, we've seen three uh, noteworthy transactions. Uh, Walgreens uh, put a billion dollar investment into Village MD, which is uh, an enhanced primary care clinic, and they're going to open clinics and. Uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of Walgreens around the country. Uh, Oak Street, um, which really focuses on dual eligible populations, you know, uh, Medicare, Medicaid eligible, did a public offering and is, uh, last time I checked, is, is trading at a market valuation uh, north of $10 billion, even though they haven't made any money yet. Uh, uh, that's more than most of the big for profit chains. Uh, there was also the announced merger of uh, Teladoc, uh, uh, the telemedicine company with Livongo, the digital care management company. 
And when you put those two together, the implied valuation was $44 billion. Um, that's bigger uh, or about the same size as HCA, the largest of the for-profit chains. So it feels like the market is sending some pretty strong signals that uh, the future isn't in bricks and mortar, but it's in companies that uh, harness uh, digital platforms that are consumer-centric, that use retail models that focus on um, wellness and prevention and not exclusively on, on treatment, or if they do treatment, they do it in uh, uh, sort of asset light ways. Bart, what's your, your take on all this? What's going on? Yeah, I mean, I'm not an, an equity research analyst, Dave, but you know, the market is going to incentivize entrepreneurialism and processes, procedures, technologies that are going to incite change. That's what our country has been about um, forever. Encouraging people through innovation that has a financial reward at the end of it. You know, and then when you think about the acute care side, you know, those investors know what's being provided. Uh, I think investors then say, you know, the big risk I face there is is what happens when the reimbursement rules change again. It's these newer companies with newer technologies that I think are going to attract the capital. And I think the challenge for them is how do you demonstrate profitability? How do you demonstrate that? Uh, things that you're doing that may be difficult to measure are truly creating value for the end user, whether that's a physician group, a managed care company, uh, an individual. Um, and so I think, you know, that's where I think you'll see those valuations get challenged. Healthcare has the possibility to have completely new delivery models that aren't weighed down by these legacy costs. Um, and that could change supply demand dynamics. And we're seeing some big players making some big bets on this. Um, but you still got um, kind of the overall industry, which is still very asset heavy, uh, but wants to do better. And uh, Dave, one of the uh, approaches I know you like are, are global budgets, uh, particularly for, for challenged marketplaces. Um, uh, done right, this can be a way to reward hospitals for outcomes and not activity because there's there's revenue coming in and hopefully invent, incentivize the type of transformation we've been talking about, you know, away from excessive acute care treatments and more into uh, prevention and promotion, chronic disease management, uh, integrating behavioral and physical health and so on. Um, why don't you talk to us a bit about global budgets, how they work, uh, and what you think are their long-term prospects. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I, I think for the areas where market forces are not positioned well to drive the kind of change that we need, I, I think we need to be thinking about as a country uh, the idea of global budgets. So examples like the Pennsylvania rural health model, um, the regulated medical economy in the state of Maryland, et cetera, create some of these glo global budgets. And it's functionally like capitation where there's, you know, dollars on a per person per period of time basis. Uh, and then you have to drive better health outcomes uh, and lower cost health outcomes for those folks as opposed to the traditional fee-for-service model. 
So, you know, what that will allow some of these neighborhoods to do is focus their dollars on prevention, on primary care, on addiction care, behavioral health, and some of those things that under a traditional fee-for-service model just don't pay well enough for folks to really invest their dollars. Global budgets used in the right pockets, uh, I think, can make a lot of sense. America is a pluralistic society, so a one-size-fits-all model isn't going to work. So people waving their arms around saying, well, all we need is Medicare for all, uh, I don't think that's going to solve our problems one bit. Just like people that wave their arms around and say, well, all we need is just market forces and you get out of the way of the market. I actually don't think that's going to work either. you got to have some kind of a combination um, uh, that makes sense around the, the various regional areas in order to really achieve the, the best outcomes for America. It's so, that's such a great point, uh, Dave, that the, I think the purists on either side push you one way or another. Um, and ultimately, there are, are fatal flaws in, in purist approaches. Yep. So w- we need to get the formula right. Uh, and I'd also argue that uh, often left out of this discussion is the community's role. We also need to think about how do we help communities promote health and well-being. And, and a lot of times that's not dollars and cents so much as just creating a culture that propels that type of thinking forward. I'm curious, as you look forward to the future of healthcare, are, are you optimistic, pessimistic? I'm an optimistic person by nature, so I, I think that all of the, the tools that we have out there and all of the, the science that we have, and uh, I think that will hopefully lead to a better system um, across the country and, and good markets or bad. I want to emphasize the most important thing is that everybody has access, but how can we encourage people to make good decisions so that the system isn't weighed down by things that are unnecessary and really so that people can just live healthier lives. And, you know, I think that really comes down to an individual level. And then how can the government, how can existing healthcare systems, um, how can the private sector create programs and incentives that make people want to not smoke, that make people want to get regular exercise, that make people make better nutrition choices. And I think that's that's where we're going to get the real bang for our buck. Because when you look at a lot of these, um, you know, chronic diseases that we're treating, um, you know, we can certainly do a lot better. So healthcare is one of the top debated and discussed topics in a variety of forums, talking about the future of America and healthcare. I think that's a great thing. There is a lot of public equity money and a lot of private equity money flowing into healthcare, trying to create um, new models. Uh, I think that is a huge positive for the future of healthcare. And then I think there are these examples of things like the Pennsylvania rural health model for areas where maybe the private equity money uh, um, isn't as plentiful. So I think, you know, the combination of all of these things uh, I think it's a big positive for healthcare over the course of time. So I'm incredibly optimistic. Wow. Well, you guys, uh, you got me pumped. Um, well, I can't let you go without asking for your one big, bold prediction for what's going to happen in healthcare over the next two to five years. So uh, uh, Bart, why don't you go first? And then Dave, you can bring us home. 
I think as we talked about earlier, one of the reasons why uh, a lot of the hospital systems have made it through at least um, you know this first six months or so of COVID uh, with balance sheets intact is, is all the money that's come in from the government. Uh, but all that money is going to have to get paid back. You know, we, we've got a Medicare and Medicaid system that's clearly clearly broken. Um, where you know we continue to sort of kick the can down the road. We need reimbursement change. I don't think the politicians will will do that. Uh, I predict that we'll need it, and they won't do it. So the status quo wins. Uh, okay, <laughs> Morlock. Well, so I, I love being on these podcasts with you, Dave. So I'm going to give you two for the price of one. Uh, two bold, two bold predictions. Um, the first is that we will have. Uh, not Medicare for all, but Medicare Advantage available to most, um, uh, which I think will have the impact on health care that's shifting from traditional pension plans to 401k plans had for retirement savings. It'll be the shift from defined benefit to defined contribution and functionally will be the privatization of Medicare. So that's prediction number one. Prediction number two is that all of this turmoil uh, will continue to drive consolidation at the, at the hospital and the health system level. And uh, I think the top 25 systems in the country uh, will own 60% of the, of the health system provider revenue in the country in five years. You two are coming down on different ends of the, uh, the equation here with regard to payment reform. So we'll see how it plays out. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, this has been a blast. And uh, I hope the audience will, will look at our uh, both articles about the future of healthcare. I expect this will be a, a topic of active conversation at the Kane Brothers Conference in, uh, in October, along with a couple other small matters like the pandemic and the presidential election. Uh, we definitely live in interesting times. But for now, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep doing what you're doing to make our health system kinder, smarter, and more accessible and affordable for all. Thank you both very much.